Hi there, Glocal Citizens. It's Florence Adu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. Today, my guest is Olivia Asedu Into, and she is the founder and CEO of the African Connection Agency, as well as the co-founder of Scale Up Africa. She is an entrepreneur with a creative flair that's super motivated, and she's after my own heart because she's also a yogi. So <laughs> without giving, giving away too much before Olivia talks about herself, let's move on into Olivia. Olivia, hi. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you hi. for having me, Florence. Really, really great to, to be part of this. This is awesome. Thank you. Wonderful. So just, I always like to do, make sure that I, I pronounce your name correctly. So can you say your name for us in case I didn't say it correctly? Oh no, you were so on point. It's definitely, definitely on point. Olivia Asiedu Into. Wonderful. Wonderful. So my listeners, I'm sure you've guessed we are in Ghana and we're actually the closest far away that I've been so far in this new completely remote uh Local Citizens podcast. So we're both in Tema. And so we're, we're practically neighbors, but obviously we can't be in the same space. So we're socially distancing across the, what is it? Just the lagoon, no, the railroad tracks, basically. Yeah. So that's just a little bit of background on our geography right now. So Olivia, mm-hmm. tell us yeah. about you. Tell us where you're from, where you're local and what's your craft. Sure. I'm from, funny enough, I'm from Tema, Ghana. I left when I was really young to the UK and I, I lived out there for the longest time. I schooled and did, you know, my university and everything out in London. So for about 30 odd years and strangely hadn't really kind of come back during that period, even for holidays or anything. But I don't know, just had some kind of like epiphany and wanted to come and visit so I came down, stayed with my brother for about six months and loved Ghana. Bearing in mind, you know, I wasn't working. I was basically on holiday. So Ghana was fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. So I decided, actually, you know, I can, I can do this. I can do this. And so I went back to the UK, packed up my stuff, moved to Ghana. Cut to nine years later, I'm still here. It was, it was such a fun, fun thing to do, I think, nine years ago when I was embarking on moving back home because I'd never really kind of it hadn't ever crossed my mind that I wanted to maybe work or live or do life in Africa because it's pretty much brought up in kind of a European background in the UK, worked in advertising for the longest time, dealing with kind of marketing and, and social media back then. So when I moved in, moved back to Ghana and wanting to kind of, you know, feel my way around in terms of what I could do, I sorted quite nicely back into, into advertising again. So I worked with some really great agencies, kind of helping kind of build brands across Pan-Africa. So looking at working in with brands such as Nestle, with their baby foods and Maggie and a range of different brands that worked across Central and Western Africa. So that was a real eye-opener for somebody that has maybe lived in Africa before, but had the opportunity to see how the other half lived in various, you know, in Francophone markets in Central region. And it was really great to have that, that complete clarity because, you know, being in Europe for so long, you know, didn't, didn't necessarily know what was happening or had any affinity with Ghana. I mean, I had family here, but didn't really kind right. of connect. So it was really nice kind of coming back and and connecting culturally. And of course, you know, the mistakes were made, like, you know, for example, you know, kind of when people are walking around around the street, whatever it is in the UK, you don't say hello to each other, but everybody does it here. <laughs> and that was very strange to me. But, you know, you get used to it and it's actually quite nice. 
it's actually really, yeah. really, really so I really kind of appreciated that and it's just nice being back home and doing things that I know is going to be for my people like so suddenly beca- became very patriotic when I moved back and I love being back home and it's been it's been a journey and a half like yeah it's been a journey it's been a journey but it's right. been fun it's been really fun so yeah. tell us where in the UK did you grow up so I grew up predominantly in northwest London and also in Middlesex. So it was very much a middle class, you know, kind of area within sort of like suburbia, if you like. It was quite cool. It was really, really cool. But until you got to the stage of like you become a teenager and you literally want to be kind of in central London and Shoreditch, you know, doing all the cool right. urban stuff. But yeah, pretty much in suburbia for the best beginning part of sort of schooling. And mm-hmm. then kind of moved into um, Stoke Newington, which was a lot more urban. It's like East London, a lot more urban, a lot more kind of, it had a bit more grit to it. So that was quite lovely. So yeah, London mm-hmm. was good fun back then. Really good fun. I don't know what it's like now. <laughs> it's been a while since I've been back. Yeah. Right, right, right. So tell us more about what you, so you kind of mentioned how you just kind of were like, let me try this out and I'm going to come and, and check it out. And your landing was fairly soft because you came to with your brother and you had, you had a home to come to yeah. basically. Yeah. So, so the question is, first of all, what was your inspiration to go into the field that you're in? Number one. And then in terms of navigating and building up the cachet that you have now in the industry here in Ghana, what was that process like? I think thinking back on it now, I must've had some kind of process because it, it all led quite neatly into what I'm doing now. When I started working in advertising, I kind of knew I had a knack to connect people or connect opportunities. In general, just connecting people together because I seem to be a bit of a social butterfly. I seem to know a lot of people and people tend to come to me and just say, oh, I need, I need to be able to do this. I'm like, wait, I kind of know somebody that can do that. So kind of working in advertising was really interesting because, of course, you're working with different brands who want to be able to connect to their stakeholders and actually being able to do that quite easily in terms of oh knowing people in different pockets within within Europe or even in, in the UK saying this is potentially what the brand could do if they spoke to these group of people to be able to connect them and do interesting things. So from that point of view, it's more on the creative level. So when I moved back to Ghana, definitely it was, it was a soft landing. So I think if I had to come in with no kind of nobody here that I knew, it would have been a lot tougher. But I think what also helped, aside from the soft landing, was there were platforms that were set up when I moved back nine years ago, uh, one of which is Hasbro. And that literally just paved the way, literally. Because that platform was like the go-to place to be connected or to connect to opportunities or, or things such as that. And I found that really interesting. And having then kind of worked through that and seeing how there was a real need for it, I started to kind of think, this is a really great thing because I kind of used to do it without even thinking in the UK. So kind of brushed that side and thought, you know, I'll come back to that. Moved, you know, worked back in the advertising industry here in Ghana. And of course, that opens up a whole new portal of different people, different stakeholders doing really interesting things. So when you work in advertising and you're working on a particular, on different brands, you get to meet different walks of life. So, you know, if I'm working with, say, an FMCG brand um, that makes tomato paste, you get to see lots of different kinds of people that are on that particular 
life cycle of that brand. So consumers, mm. stakeholders, suppliers, and then you start to kind of build your network and then start to connect the dots in terms of, you know, there's an opportunity for a different brand to do something interesting. You're like, oh, why do you wait? The brand that I work on this side of the table, I have got this going on. Why do you connect? And I started to redo that again. And it, it just it just always seemed to attach itself to me in terms of the connecting thing. Mm-hmm. Because the one thing I've noticed here is we, we, we don't like to connect so much. <laughs> we just like to hold things, hold things very, very close to ourselves. So when people started to notice that I was doing this willingly, it became a thing. So like, whatever you need, you'll see Olivia Pope. So I ended up getting the name Olivia Pope. That's even what I use in terms of my username on my Twitter as Olivia Pope. They're like, yeah, whatever you need, Olivia will find you somebody or try and fix something for you to make whatever you're trying to do happen. And I started to realize that actually across all the different companies that I'd worked for, I'd been that implementer or that connector or the person that pieces things together and helps you develop whatever idea you're looking to develop. So when I finally decided actually I'd had enough of advertising because at some point it felt as if a lot of the companies or brands that we were working with were not being or were not open to innovation and you can't stay in this place forever literally. So I just thought actually you know I'm just going to step out of the advertising sector, but I built a really solid community across the ecosystem of being in advertising that I sat back and thought, actually, what I'd really love to do is to be a connector. I hadn't really thought through how I was going to do it. So in essence, I just started, I, I literally registered my company and called it The Connection. Didn't, like, there was no thought process. It was a case of, I'm a great connector. I'm going to call you The Connection. But when I actually <laughs> registered the business, literally, like, like, it was just that basic. But when I registered the business and they said, oh, I need to have a long form name, which I thought was odd. That's when I thought I'm going to call it the African Connection Agency Limited. And then when I came back and I sat down, and I told my dad what I'd done. He's just like, oh my God, that is amazing. There is something much bigger behind the connection, which is how do you actually connect Africa better together? And that was, that was a light bulb. And I was like, oh my God, I feel like that's why I came back home to be able right. to better connect Africa. But then I started thinking, how on earth am I going to do that? It's so ambiguous. And so looking at looking at some of the issues we face across different sectors, across, you know, sanitation, health. I mean, we have a lot of, we have a lot of problems. We have a lot of problems. So there was a case of, why don't you try help to fix some of these problems? And I'm literally sitting there looking at my dad going, I've been in Ghana for almost, what, five years. Yes, I know a lot of people, but everyone sees me like this small girl. I even get called a small girl, literally. So you want me to go into these male dominated industries and be like, I can help you fix all these problems in, in these sectors by looking at how we create a sustainable ecosystem. And that was it. It was literally just plugging myself into these different industries. So I started off with agriculture. I attended as many agricultural seminars, events. I mean, they have like major events that happens once or twice a year. I attended all of them just to try and understand why are things so expensive? Why are produce so expensive? One of the things around it was, I think I went out to buy bananas and I gave the lady five CDs. And she gave me five sticks. No, she gave me three sticks of bananas. And I thought, wait, am I being cheated again? Because I feel like I get cheated on a regular basis. And she said, oh, the farmers increased their pricing. And so this is how much it costs. I was like, what? Give me me the farmer's number. Do you have it? She's like, yes, she gave me the number. Called the guy. And he started kind of ranting and raving. I'm like, where's the farm? And he said, drive to Ibri and I'll direct you. So got in the car, drove to Ibri, got Mm -hmm. to the spot 
expect a waiter. And I was like, okay, so where's the farm? And it's like, yeah, now you have to walk for the next 45 minutes. I'm like, why? It's like, your car won't make it because the road is terrible. Yes. So I was like, yeah. okay then. So I started the walk. I don't know what the hell got into me. Started the walk into this ab- abyss of nowhere in the, yeah. the bellend of frigging um, Avery. And I get to the farm and it's this beautiful mass huge hectares of land that he had all these amazing like fruits and vegetables planted. I was just like, this is amazing. But why am I banana so expensive? You've got all these things here. It's like, how do I get it down to the, the people yes, that need it? And right. I was like, oh, oh wow. Yeah. And there's no when I started to think, mm-hmm. exactly. That's when I started to think, okay, let's now look at agric as a main sector and try and see how we can connect the dots in terms of making the the ecosystem or the supply chain a lot more sustainable. So then it was a case of, okay, who do I need to talk to to fix the road? Speaking to the local people within the area, had to go see the chiefs. And literally, like after maybe a year or so of doing this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and not really getting anywhere, I decided to write my concept note, which spoke around actually creating some kind of platform where public sector, private sector, political sector can all get involved and actually fix certain elements across the supply chain for agriculture. And I wanted to use it as a test case because once that's done, you can literally pick that up and and use that across all the other sectors for sanitation, for education, Mm -hmm. for everything else. But agriculture was such a big, it's such a big beast that we're still kind of still in the agric space and trying to get public and private and political to all be aligned it's extremely difficult because everybody has their own agenda. They're all interested mm-hmm. in doing things for themselves. So kind of mm-hmm. had to pivot, pivot to this whole thing in a completely different way. And that's where I bumped into my business partner for Scale of Africa, where she said, mm-hmm. I've been trying to do the same thing for the last however many years. I have investors who are interested in coming on board. I work with SMEs in the agri sector. They're all crying and suffering. And then we both sat and it was almost like an Eureka moment. We're like, wait, why are we trying to beat ourselves so hard to try and recreate something that people aren't ready for it. Why don't we help the SMEs scale by actually holding their hands and help them grow within the agricultural sector and getting private sector to assist? Let's leave the government, let's leave politics out of this because if we're able to help the SMEs scale and the corporates help them scale, they'll end up being the future customers and clients and stakeholders of the big corporates. So it's in their best interest to work together and help us do this. And that was it. Scale of Africa was born. <laughs> so we started, awesome. I started the connecting. My friends started finding like investors. We started looking at SMEs and we started, we started to actually see progress, which was great. And then of course, COVID hit. So we had to pivot again. Mm-hmm. So we're doing all of this, like webinars and masterclasses to actually build our online community. So it's been a journey. Mm-hmm. From where it's now, it's just like this is actually where we're supposed to be to actually help SMEs who are maybe not able to be part of the program or reach us is to actually see rich content where they're getting masterclasses or they're they're being part of a webinar where they can understand how to pivot within the situation because we're always always going to need food to eat. We're always going to need we're always going to need food basically. So if we're able to help these SMEs kind of scale and grow and get them into yeah. kind of a a growth mindset you know, we're all laughing. So that's kind of where it all kind of started. It's, it's really crazy. Right. I'm out. <laughs> well, you know, Ama has been a guest on the, the program. So she, oh, she, she's been a guest. So she spoke about not only scale up, but also the Dan residents and, and, and exactly the kinds of things that you're speaking about in terms of problem solving for SMEs. But I want to ask you, so in this context, because you, you've hit on two things that really ring 
in my ears in terms of this is my observation as well, is we have this tendency for inertia, right? So this farmer was just basically like, well, I'm here doing what I do and I'm going to keep doing what I do. And I'm not going to, what I, my answer to my problem is just to raise the prices, right? So in case I needed to bring, you know, five more people to move the product, then that's what I'm going to do. So that's one, like, how are you dealing with inertia? And the other is part of that inertia is when you say people keep things to themselves, because I think that that is definitely a huge plague that we're dealing with in terms of like, you know, just not being able to, because you're a connector and that's what you do. But how do you deal with when you come up against the, these cultures of of really holding on to the information? Yes. So the how do I deal with sort of this inertia of people keeping stuff to them? What I found was initially when I found people were not so open, it was frustrating. Mm-hmm. And I literally wanted to cry and just curl up in the ball and just be like, why are they being so mean? I didn't understand it. And I tried to understand why, but I also see from the other perspective in terms of where a community of, I don't want to say gossipers, we like to know what's happening in other people's lives, but we don't like to share because either we've been bitten badly by maybe being a little bit open and someone spreads your story around. Because Ghana, in essence, now oh, it's not, you know, two degrees. Exactly. It's not It's not two degrees or six degrees of separation. It's literally one degree. Basically. So we, it feels a bit like a village where everybody knows everybody's business. And that's why everyone's being really closed about being super open or wanting to help. But there's also the other thing which I found, which is... I don't want my neighbor to do better than myself, which is very weird in a community where we're all about, you know, we're the nicest people when you come visit us and all that kind of stuff. So there's that weird dichotomy of we're really nice, but we're not going to be helpful if we don't want to be helpful. We're not going to try and be as open as we possibly can be. But to your face, you know, people assume Ghanaians are the loveliest people. And we are, but there's this other side, which is just like, yeah, I'm going to keep stuff to myself sort of thing. So that was really, really, really interesting to kind of, to notice. But one of the ways I was able to maneuver around that is I noticed that the one thing that we appreciate and we really like is when someone is doing something really awesome and is open to sharing their thoughts around it, or someone is doing some something with someone abroad, we rate that. And so we're like, okay, great. Now I want to get involved because you did something with someone from abroad, from abroad. So that has more clout. And so I want to be a part of that. But if I try to do something locally, nobody would, would be interested until I've been able to reach out to somebody internationally or globally. That's when everyone's just like, oh, you know, we're open to collaborating. We're open to sharing our thoughts. We're open to help you connect. That's when people are a lot more open. So I haven't, I didn't necessarily try and overthink that. I just thought, okay, that's clearly what works here. I'm just going to jump on that and see how that works. But I think moving forward, what I've tried to do is actually tap into my tribe. So the people that I know, their mindset is, is similar to mine or they're more open or more innovative and kind of work in that particular group and maybe trying to expand gently outwards by inviting people in to just say, it's okay. It's okay to actually kind of help other people. It's okay to be innovative. It's okay to think outside the box because I think it also dates back to how we were educated in school. Like I did schooling here for a very short period of time at SOS, Herman Minor. And I was lucky enough to go to a private school where you're kind of given the opportunity to speak your mind. Not too much, but still speak your mind. But I think a lot of schools back then, and maybe even now, is whatever the teacher tells you is gospel. You don't speak back. You don't, you know, you're not allowed to critically think for yourself. 
So I think that's also the other thing of, oh, maybe if I said it and it might not be correct, I might be vilified for it. So that's probably why people also keep stuff close to to their chest. So involving like-minded people and then tapping into the ones that you know, it won't take too much for them to also be those kinds of like-minded people. And then just hoping and praying that after year four or five or 10, you've got, you've built enough of a community of innovative thinkers and agile thinkers who are open to helping you build and connect and evolve and do all that kind of wonderful stuff. Right, right. And so what's interesting is I find that, that it doesn't matter what your economic status is because it, it goes across the socioeconomic spectrum, that same kind of behavior. So clearly yeah. it's cultural and clearly yeah. in some ways it's definitely related to, to fear in some ways. So in your marketing mind, how do you imagine or, or what are some of the things that you do that speak to the different subsectors? Because, you know, you know, because of your work, you're, you're dealing with the farmer, you're dealing with the business person, you're dealing with the corporate. And in each of those sectors, you have that same kind of mentality. So how are you from a marketing and spin perspective able to address it? Or what are you, what are some ideas that you might even just share with our listeners about how to address opening people's minds? I think a lot of it is to do with just stripping it back and figuring out what is what is the single truth that the farmer needs to hear? What all it resonates with his journey. Mm, um, mm-hmm. Whatever. So a lot of the times when I'm talking to brands who want to be able to do, you know, just really highbrow stuff or are thinking, oh no, the consumer is not bright enough to understand it. I'm like, mm, do you understand their journey? Like if you, there's that famous thing about walk a mile in someone's, someone's um, walk a mile in someone's steps and you might be able to be empathetic to understand their journey or whatever like that. It's like understanding the consumer or the stakeholder, each of these stakeholders you have, you're trying to communicate to, understanding their journey, understanding what they view or they see as important to them, and then carving out a narrative that fits that. But it's not too far away from what your overall vision is of your organization. So one of the things that I wanted to do under for the connection in terms of tapping into these different stakeholders was with the farmer, I literally just said to him, what is it that you want to be able to achieve? And for him, it was really simple. It was, I want to be able to feed my kids, send them to school. And that was it. He didn't go into any massive diatribe about, I want to be able to sell in supermarkets. I want to be able to, no, 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 no. And that was it. And I think a lot of the times what we try to impose on someone's journey is, no, you don't want that. That's too basic. But that's what he wants. Mm-hmm. And so just mm-hmm. like, okay, that's all you want. Brilliant. How are we able to to help you do that? If you fix the roads, I'll be able to get down the road easier where my produce, by the time I get to the end of the road, I haven't lost 40% of my produce. That means I have to increase the prices. And that means I I end up selling less. So then you start to work out, go backwards and work out, okay, the roads are fixed. All your produce will come down safely. You'll be able to sell it at a reasonable rate. You'll be able to sell all of it. And so make a really decent harvest. Your consumers or your customers or your suppliers or your other stakeholders will be happy because you know, you're selling it at a really good rate, which means when they sell it on, they're also going to keep their customers happy. So it's a knock-on effect. As opposed to saying, no, don't worry. Instead of maybe looking to fix the roads, give them this big plan about actually what we need to do is get your produce into the stores and do this and do that. It's actually, you know, strip it all the way back and just understand the consumer's journey and what, what their single truth is. I just want to feed my kids and take them to school. That's it. How do I do that? Fix the road. <laughs> that is it. Right. 
very small. So mm-hmm. there's that whole open effect on like, okay, great. So how do we then get the government to fix the road? Well, if the government fixes the road, maybe I might vote for them. Basic stuff. Great. Scold the, the, the people that look after that area, the municipality people, whatever they're called, and say, if you were able to fix this road, which has a community of maybe about 4,000 people, that's 4,000 votes when it comes to voting. So why don't you just fix the road? You're speaking their language because that's their truth. All they care about is numbers. Not all they care about, but that's what they care about, the numbers. So, okay, Uh speak a language that they understand. Like, that's how you market to them. Okay, you're about numbers. Fix the roads, keep him happy. He'll be able to bring four extra thousand thousand votes to vote for you in this particular region. Done deal. And it's just speaking the language that affects each of these people across the, the ecosystem, if you like. Or, yeah, the ecosystem of, of being in agriculture. Just some really simple, basic stuff to get to, for people to understand that you understand their journey and you're empathetic enough to understand what they really, truly need without imposing your own big ideals on them. And that's kind of how I've kind of utilized it, used to, to be able to, to work through these different stakeholders that I come across. Right. Makes a lot of sense. And speaking of speak... This is where I go into my local speak question. (laughs) We want to hear what you hear. So I asked my guests to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value this as global speak. I don't know if it's global speak, but I've actually kind of seen it being used much more than it was. So I find that before I get to be, I find that every time there is an issue, be it in my personal life, in my professional life, or in, in any of my lives, mm-hmm. everyone just says, oh, oh, God, God will provide. Or there's, there's a way they say it in Chi, and I can't remember how you say it properly. Um, like God will provide. And, and literally, it, it just cuts across, even in professional settings, oh, God will provide, literally. And I remember a really good friend of mine that I used to work with, a publicist, literally said, hope is not a strategy. <laughs> and now I notice that people are using it a lot more. And it's like, seriously, we're just going to sit back and just hope that everything goes well. No, we've got to, you know, plug in. We've got to, we've got to be a part of making sure this strategy happens or this opportunity yeah. or this solution actually happens. Don't just sit back and just say, Nyamiwaho. pray for sure. You know, I'm a Christian. I will pray. But hope is not sure. a strategy. That is not a strategy. Right. Something that I'm right. noticing that we do that a lot. And I'm like, oh, yes. see, pray, yeah. definitely. But don't just sit back and wait for things to just happen because you're hoping it will just all fall into place. You have to put some kind of action and plan behind it for it to work. Yeah. So for yeah. me, I always think back to them like, yeah, hope is not a strategy. And I absolutely ah. love that say. <laughs> right. Okay. Yame waho and hope is not Yame a strategy. Waho. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But it's true. You're so, you're so right. It's it's this kind of defeat that, and I mean not defeat. I guess it's just faith or something that's like that takes the onus off of the self, which is very interesting because we are such a I want to say religious more than necessarily spiritual, but a very religious country. So I think it's the default form is oh we'll just give it to God. Yeah, you know yeah. that's just what we'll do and. And I think across the globe, that's really kind of an ethic. But we're seeing now that, sure, like you said, let's let's pray, let's let's do that, let's have faith. But we actually have to take action. There are things that have to be done, and we've already been anointed to do those things. So let's move on. Thank you. You've just hit the nail. We've been anointed to do those things. So come on, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. I want to get a little bit more into scale up 
from a evolutionary perspective. So particularly what you're doing now that is specific to our times now, because a lot of what would have happened, you would have been working closely, hand in hand, face to face with these companies. And now you're moving to a whole different medium, which is fine because, you know, distance learning has been something that's taken place. But just tell us more. How are you evolving that? Because it's almost a whole new business model to some extent. It is in a sense, because initially, I guess it's not too much of a jump from where we were going to start from. So we have um, sort of a, a squad team of 10 enterprise experts who are basically the ones, you know, individuals within various areas that help a company grow. So if you think of the the legal side of it, the marketing side, PR, policy, VAT, you just, you name it, like every single part of the HR, all those areas, leadership skills, all those areas, a lot of these partners that we're working with, we're all going to do a portion of the handholding virtually. Okay. Um, but also there's going to be a mix of virtual virtual handholding, but also face-to-face where they book time in and actually sit and have a conversation, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't like a million miles away from what we're trying to achieve. The thing that slightly pivoted more was we wanted to be able to, to have like a fly-on-the-wall documentary-style um, show that actually showcased, you know, the warts and all, the good, the bad and the ugly of running your own business in Ghana or in Africa, because it's literally, it's the most difficult thing anybody could potentially do. It's, it's not for the faint hearted. It's like almost as if you're riding a bike, you, the human being on the bike is on fire. The bike is on fire. The road is on fire and there are no tires. That's like <sighs> running, being an entrepreneur in, in Africa. Like there is just, you're constantly, you know, firefighting, constantly firefighting because the system is not, you know, it's not built to a proper stage where, things can happen fluidly. So there's a lot of, you know, ups and downs. And so we wanted to be able to capture this and almost create sort of a, a roundtable discussion around it, like a show maybe once a month or once a fortnight, which actually gave you that little piece of like the little bit of a drama around running your own businesses, the successes, but also the failures. Because all right. we hear day on, day in, day out is how successful this startup has become. But they don't tell you how hard it is to actually run a business. So right. you have all the young, grassroots, amazing graduates coming out and going, yeah, we'll run my own business when you haven't even worked for, you haven't even done a paper round. Like you don't even know how to set up a business from scratch. And you're sitting there going, I want to build a global brand. Okay, we're in Ghana right now. There are some mitigating circumstances that's going to stop you from doing that. So there are ways there are ways and things that you need to learn before you get to saying, right, I'm going to turn my side hustle into a full-blown enterprise. Mm-hmm. And I think we don't share those stories. We don't share those narratives. Like I remember a few months into, um, no, a year into running my business and a client decided, oh yeah, I don't have any money to pay you. Literally. From there, I I learned the hard way in terms of understanding where I can find my reserves, understanding how I'm able to make sure that these clients that I'm working with, they're vetted in, in a much, much better way because we don't have the vetting systems here. So sure. all of these all of these stories, I thought, oh my God, I'm on my I must be suffering by myself. And it got to a stage where there'll be weeks in which and Amos even helped it in the recent times where a client decided, Oh, I, I can't pay you. And literally you're like, wait, what? Even to put petrol in my car to go to a meeting was difficult. I didn't have any credit. I, you know, my friend, a friend of mine put me up for about two weeks because I live in Tema, all my meetings are in Accra. None of my yeah. clients are 
open to doing a Zoom call because by then they, did, they didn't understand the need for it. Yes. Right. I want to see this. And a lot of these meetings could have been done by email. Yes. So all of these extra expenses, and I thought, am I going crazy? Am I the only one going through this? And I thought, no, I'm going to put my story out there. So I posted it on Facebook. And the number of people that contacted me on the side to say, I'm going through exactly the same thing made me think, wait, we're all suffering in silence and we're not showcasing the warts and all of being an entrepreneur. And we're assuming these kids who want to set up their own side hustles become global brands. We're kind of laughing at them thinking, oh yeah, you don't understand it. Of course they don't understand it because we're not sharing our stories. Right. And that's a penny dropped in terms of like, can you imagine if the, the, the small number of people who have reached out to me, can you imagine if we're able to put this show on a pan-African platform, how many right. people are going to come and say, oh my goodness, I thought I was alone, but I'm not. So what are we doing about it? What if a client tells you I can't afford to pay you? What are the banks doing to help you with like 0% interest rates on, I don't know, overdrafts as they do in the UK? What, what is everyone doing to try and help, you know, a small medium enterprise to flourish and become not even become a big corporate, to even just have an extra, what is it called? Like open up an, another branch in Tampa. Sometimes that is what Scale Up is all about. It's not about just being on a global platform because of the situation of the economy, of the situation of the country that we're in and not everything being as fluid or as, you know, we, we have issues, we have problems, we get it. So Scale Up has literally been as practical as possible. And we wanted to be able to showcase all of this on a show Every fortnight, bit of drama, bit of spice, but also saying, look, this is, well, this is what it's at. We're giving you what's and all. We're giving you the fun bits. We're giving you the hard bits. We're giving you the, the flashy, flashy bits of when you understand the practicalities of running your own business. So that has pivoted a little bit in terms of, okay, let's build an online community and let's share these stories. And let's start to see how corporates can come on board and help. Investors can come on board and help. But also maybe, maybe shame the government into fixing certain things in the economy. Right. Just be like, oh, we can't do this by ourselves. You're basically paving the way for us to fail. Please help us grow and scale. Even if it's just to open one extra shop in Tamale, because to us, that would be a success. And that was right. it. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's still possibility with that. I mean, I think everybody now is recognizing yeah. that they are content creators. So exactly. in, in your training modules, I'm sure you're now, I guess, figuring out how to make sure that people know how to properly operate their mobile phones and their cameras and their microphones so that they can communicate with each other effectively. Um, so question for you then, I mean, you kind of were moving in this direction. So what does impact mean for scale up. So you've had this, you know, concept node and everything, particularly with the sector you're working on. What does impact mean in the context of that? And how are you measuring it? I think before I kind of like really understood the journey of each of these stakeholders, my in my mind, my impact was like, we're gonna, you know, scale you up into into again, trying to force this thing on them into international mm-hmm. markets, selling in Tesco's and da, 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 da. Yeah. And then Actually sitting down with Amma and realizing and understanding the plight of each of these stakeholders and actually talking to a number of them, it's like actually a lot of them are quite happy where they are. Mm-hmm. Like I'm quite content. So there wasn't like a massive, there wasn't, even if it's not like a massive shift, it's still impact. Because if you look at how, if you're a startup, how you're literally bombarded with like accelerated this and accelerated that. And they throw money at you. And six weeks, it's like, go, 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 go. And then after that, n- no one gets in touch. <laughs> like they give right. you the money. 
they've given you six weeks of like, yeah, rah, rah, hey, you're amazing, blah, blah, this is how you can do this. Blah, blah, blah. And then they leave you <laughs> for about however long. No one reaches back out to you to just say, oh, by the way, the money that was sent, like how are you, what are you investing in? Blah, blah, blah. Bearing in mind, these people don't necessarily have, and I've noticed this, and I don't think I'm out of time in saying this, a lot of these startups or SMEs do not have a growth mindset. So you throw money at me when I don't have a growth mindset. I'm going to go buy me a brand new car. Hell yeah. I'm buy myself a beautiful new apartment. And then the business is still going to be doing whatever the hell it's doing, which is failing slowly. So there's actual stats that startups that literally have this whole accelerator thing where these big kind of hubs or these big accelerator programs say, we impacted 10,000 startups to be able to, you know, we impacted 10,000 startups. Okay, great. And what sense did you impact them? Are we, because they're more quantitative than qualitative. So Got it. for scale up Africa, it's more quantitative. So mm-hmm. in essence, we're not looking at big impacts. We're looking at impact that's actually going to make a difference in the lives of the people who are currently living it. So if mm-hmm. I'm able to shift your mindset from going, oh, I'm comfortable where I'm at. If I'm able to shift your mindset to actually think, oh, actually, I can see a potential to maybe do, and it could be something really small. I can see a potential to maybe collaborate with, there's a guy next door that makes rice, whatever it is, and I make tomatoes. We can maybe get together and do something. That for me is amazing because even right now, people aren't thinking like that. They're not thinking collaboration. They're not thinking, oh, it's not just about me. Maybe if I worked with this guy, we could put a package together and go to, you know, FMCG brand so they can take, no. If we're able to get a number of different suppliers, stakeholders, whomever are within the supply chain, within the agriculture or within any sector at all, to think collaboratively, to think beyond me, instead of it being me, 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 it's we. How do we grow together? How do we build together? But also at the same time, see potential as to love to be able to, you know, open another shop in another place in Ghana and see how I can work with that community and start to build. They might seem like little, but that's huge in terms of where they're at now to where that could potentially take them. So, yes, impact would be great if we could say, oh, yes, we help 10,000 SMEs scale. That's great. But the on the ground practicalities of getting to that stage, we're light years behind. We are light years because we still have to work with people to even think beyond I'm comfortable where I'm at. I mean, nobody ever grew nothing, nothing great ever grew out of being in your comfort zone. And a lot of, a lot of these people are in the comfort zone because they've not been shown the way that could actually entice them to say, oh, we could do actually do this in a more collaborative sort of way. So we're not saying, you know, consumerism should kind of completely take over, but also not saying just be in your little corner, do your own little thing. Because actually, if you open up and are collaborative with other people of the, the right kinds of people, it would really build your brand and bolster you up as an individual to do more and affect change with more people. And I think that's, for us, that's kind of the impact that we're looking for. It's more quantitative as opposed to big numbers because we know that there's a lot of things that we need to do around even capacity building. Right. There's a great deal that needs to be done on that side of things. So for us, it's about that. And that's why the storytelling comes in because if you're an investor and you're not seeing the big numbers, you're kind of like, well, what, what change did you guys do? But if we're yeah. able to coin it to a really you know, impactful narrative and saying we've shifted mindset from here to here, which has changed how people think and therefore that has changed how people see things, that's going to be impacted not just on you, but your community and your community's community. And that can only mean bigger and better things for everybody else. 
So for us, it's definitely the quantitative side of things in terms sure. of impact as opposed to the qualitative side of things. Sure, sure, sure. And I like that that she said um, impactful narrative because that yeah. that's a new story. And that segues into my mindset hack question for you. So okay. This is what I ask. What is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? This is one that you can imagine or one that you know of or one that you practice. I must admit, being a bit of a yogi, mm-hmm. I do love, I do love the, I can't remember what it's called. Oh my God, it's going to be, it's called Calm, Daily Calm. Oh, okay. So, it's an app. Yeah. So there's Daily Calm or even the, there's like the 21 day one that Deepak Chopra and Oprah do every so often. Yes. And it's literally kind of like, it sets my mind right. Because I think for me personally, when I wake up in the morning, if I'm not, when I wake up in the morning, my mind is literally racing because I'm just, oh, I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to do that. Then I'm going to do this. And you end up not really doing much because you're constantly kind of overthinking everything. Mm-hmm. So for me to be able to actually get my mind right and actually get it focused because I'm very kind of comfortable kind of juggling or managing ambiguity, which can be a curse and a blessing at the same time. Right. But I think yeah. having these apps or these things that actually quietens down my mind and makes me super razor sharp focused in terms of like, I'm going to concentrate on doing two things really well. Because don't forget, the space that I'm coming from in terms of my mindset and how you know I was educated in Europe was very much around you're driven to the point where you're bleeding through your fingernails. It's go, 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 go. There's no time for you to relax and whatnot. You can juggle 17 billion things at once. Do it, do it, go, 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 go. And then you end up not being as efficient as you can be. So for me, it's actually getting these calming platforms or apps or mindset shifts where literally kind of like just pulls it back and just says, just concentrate on just doing two things really well. Just two Mm -hmm. things. And Mm -hmm. A, you're not a failure for not having done 17 billion things in the last second or haven't caught up on this and juggled that and been able to balance this in your head as you're doing. So all of those things, (laughs) it really helps you use those kind of the the calm, the daily calm to actually just calm that whole super driven whatnots when you're working in, in London where everyone's literally thriving like it's craziness. And it's the same thing in, in New York and the kind of other big cities. So kind of that calm really helps to really be super focused in terms of, okay, I'm only going to try and accomplish two things and I'm going to do it extremely well. And yeah, that's been very helpful over the last couple of years in terms of zoning in on that because over here it's a case of, you know, we're very relaxed with everything. But when you're brought up in Europe or in the US, I feel like you're kind of, you're pitted against each other going, you've, you've got to drive and drive and go, 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 go. And then you just end up kind of like juggling so many things that aren't necessarily, you know, they don't, they don't, they're not as productive, if you like. So kind of right. being more and be more super focused. I'd say that's mostly for me anyway, that's what's been really helpful for me to, to utilize. And I think that's key because even now that pe- everyone's on lockdown, everyone's in the house, there's so much still going on in the house. If you have a family, there's a lot going on that has to be managed. Oh, God, you yeah. know, it's not just, it's not just, oh, I'm home. I mean, me, I live by myself. And so I'm, I'm here on lockdown pretty much primarily by myself. So it's not such a big, but even so everyone else's distractions, because they're distracted, they come into play. So I think that's, you know, whether or not we're moving around, whether or not we're still, we still need that time of stillness, that's focused stillness so that we can actually get our minds ready. Because I can see so many people, you know, if you wake up and first thing you do is look at the COVID news, you're a mess. Oh my goodness. 
no, exactly. And there's a lot of that's, it. There's yeah. Of and it. that's that's what a lot of people's practice became. I mean, typically a lot of people will wake up and listen to the news, but the COVID news is a non-stop. And I'm not just saying don't be aware of it, but you know, there's a time and a space for everything. Exactly. But there's also that weird, I've started to notice kind of this content on social media, mostly kind of almost alluding to the fact that at the end of all of this, if you haven't learned, if you're not able to speak Russian at the end of all of this, then seriously, why have right. you been at home for eight months? You're right. like, really? That what kind too. of pressure is this? What kind yeah. of pressure is this? Yeah, no, it's true. It's like, oh, all of a sudden I'm super person because I'm home doing nothing. No, oh Abby. <laughs> You're probably just getting your mind right because you needed it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. What is that like? Yeah, crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Like a what? Please. (laughs) Wow. Well, wow. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Olivia. We'll have to do it again. I really want to invite you back for some of our roundtables. I'm going to start moving into that direction as well. So we're actually looking at how local citizens are really and can influence the narrative, kind of like what you're saying in general. Before we go, I like to ask a question of my guests that gets a little bit more into the who you are, not just from your craft perspective. So tell me, what are you watching these days? Oh, that's dangerous. (laughs) Only because I do love my Ratchet TV. Okay, let's hear it. Ratchet galore. So you have your hip hop stuff, loving hip hop. Yes, yes, I am that girl. Ratchet. Ratchet is my go-to. My other very guilty pleasure is, what is it called? It's Made in Chelsea. I used to watch it a lot when I was in the UK and I still watch it to this day. Okay. (laughs) It's called Made in Chelsea. And I think it's just escapism really. More so now because I'm just like, there's a lot of crazy news and whatnots out there. I just want to watch Ratchet TV where it's just like, oh no, she did. Oh yes, she did. And it's just, it's just, (laughs) It calms me. It really does. <laughs> it's true. You can just let that, you know, roll off your shoulders and move on to the next. Exactly. exactly. So, okay. yeah, queen of Ratchet TV. Yes, bring it. <laughs> okay. All right. That's funny. So, Olivia, any final words as we sign off? Anything you want to say to our guests? Last words for now. I think just for all of us to do our parts, however big, small, minute, Let's all do our parts. Let's all be better connected because this is the only time that we will ever have this period to just dream and fulfill certain things that we thought we'd never have the chance to do it. This is the time to do it. But in the same breath, you know, don't go crazy. Just do you. And this shall pass. All this will pass. But this is the best time to kind of just re-dig up certain kind of passions that you've had. You thought, oh, I'd never have the time to do it. And I feel like although, yes, it's COVID and it's terrible, there's a silver lining within that, which is awakening people's desires. And it's just awakening people in general because you have this time to maybe have some time to think, reimagine certain things. And it's good. It's always good to reevaluate and move forward. And I think this is the best time to do it. So let's all move forward. Let's not let's not let this dampness at all. Let's all move forward. for sure. And that's it. We can only ever move forward. So that's great advice. Yeah. All right. Well, local citizens, this has been another episode of the podcast. Borderless mindset around doing something in the world. We're here with each and every Tuesday with a new episode. And you can catch us at localcitizenspod.com or wherever you find your podcasts. So until next time, bye for now.